So the humoral system exists both in the ancient period for Greeks and Romans as well as medieval people. So you can go ahead and make fun of humors all you want. But just so you know, it was the prevailing medical theory up until the 19th century. So you can't just blame it on medieval people. It's like the Romans were doing this. We were doing this. Everybody was doing this, right? The idea is that there was kind of like four uh, humors in your body. There's blood, black bile, yellow bile, and phlegm. Um, these correspond to different kind of characteristics. So things are either cold or hot, wet or dry. Okay. Um, and women are cold and wet and men are hot and dry. Oh, okay. Um, and, as, and as a result of being, it's confusing, right? Because as a result of being cold and wet, women are more interested in sex because it warms them up. Ah, <laughs> sorry. So, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's so, <laughs> yeah, they're trying to get hot. We're basically like oh, lizards, just trying to just trying to get some heat off someone else. <laughs> exactly. What do you think about when you hear the term the Middle Ages, or if something is referred to as medieval? If you think it's about boring, stuffy old people lounging around and catching the Black Plague, you'd be wrong. And Dr. Elena Janiger is here to tell you why. As a medieval historian, Dr. Janiger mixes her passion for pop culture with her encyclopedic knowledge of all things Middle Ages to create sharp, cutting, and hilarious essays for her website, Going Medieval. Her posts range from topics like the use of religious iconography in politics to medieval sex to why the Black Pig isn't exactly the same as the pandemic that we are currently facing. Welcome to Storyteller. I'm your host, Lisa Golden. This week, we're going medieval. I love this interview. You can hear me laughing all the way through. We do talk about sex and there's the odd swear word, so maybe save this one for when little or sensitive ears aren't around. If you're not a history buff, don't worry, I'm not either. We do start off by discussing when exactly the medieval period was, as well as why Dr. Janiger gets annoyed with people posting plague masks, and why the Dark Ages may not be exactly what you think it is. Okay, so I have Dr. Elena Janiger, am I pronouncing that correctly? You did, you got it, yes. Um, from the incredible um, blog website, uh, Going Medieval. And should, should I call, I saw on your site that you like Dr. Yanniger if you're nasty, which I love. Um, <laughs> but which which do you prefer? Um, you know, you can call me Eleanor because we're hanging out. Uh, but, you know, it's only people who are uh, trying to correct me and being wrong that have to say Dr. Yanniger. Yeah, yeah. I always just feel like if I had a doctorate, I would just make everyone call me doctor all the time. <laughs> um so can you just tell the the audience who may have not maybe have not had a chance to uh, read your stuff yet what you you do and a bit about going medieval? Oh yeah, so well you know um, I am uh, for my sins a medieval historian, um, and uh, basically I started going medieval because one of the things that I think that people don't really realize about medieval history is actually how much is still affecting us. Um, all of the different ways in which like we're still kind of recovering from medieval history or the way that medieval tropes kind of like work into our everyday life. Um, and in particular, actually pop culture. Um, and I think that's really fun. <laughs> I wanted to find a way to talk to normal people about it because, you know, the problem with um, academia is that, you know, you can have these really high level in-depth conversations with, you know, experts, 
balance, which is wonderful. And of course, I value that. But um, at the end of the day, I feel like if we're just talking to the same, you know, 10 people over and over again, that's not actually really advancing uh, you know, the field at all whatsoever. What you need to do is you need to talk to regular people in a way that they understand why this is important to them, how this affects them and get them thinking about medieval history or there's no real point. You know, yeah. I, I think that the, the point of, of doing things like this, of doing this kind of work is to kind of get it into the general consciousness and we don't do that unless we talk to regular people yeah yeah and so um your your areas are late medieval sexuality apocalyptic thought propaganda and the urban experience so um you've obviously got lots to write about in the last couple of years <laughs> yeah um you know what a time to be alive uh, i guess <laughs> that it, it's one of those things where you you know obviously when you do sexuality it's always um always prescient um and i think that also there is some something to be said for apocalypticism as always kind of being an undercurrent within especially like you know christian or former christian societies there's always this kind of like bent there um but yeah i really didn't think that the whole black death stuff would start uh coming up as much as it is now so uh good for me I yeah guess. yeah and I've, I've been particularly enjoying um um you've got a fantastic twitter that i can just encourage anyone to read but i'm i'm quite enjoying the general uh, annoyance about black plague masks. Can you do a quick ex quick explanation about why they're enraging you? So, <laughs> I mean, number one, like I want to get it out there that I love and appreciate uh, a plague mask. They're great. Like let's let's love them all day long. But the problem is they're not medieval. Um, they are something that propped up with the modern version of the plague, which happens in the 17th century, which is just like underline 100. That's not the medieval period. Um, they mainly we think. Um, kind of existed in the Italian city-states and nowhere else, really. And so they're this really kind of particularized and localized thing. Um, and people go, oh, yes, medieval plague masks. And there's this, like, a kind of, uh, like, a consideration that there was everyone walking around in the 14th century all over Europe wearing these things. And they're really cool. And I really like them. And just, like, come on, man. Like, have some respect. Let the modern period have some cool things sometimes. <laughs> yeah. You know, the modern period can have wine windows and it can have, you know, the, the cool plague masks they're neat like let's just let's just own them they can be ours you know um so for my my audience will mostly be non-history people could you just do a quick refresher for people who aren't very aware of their time periods so could we do yeah. a little bit like what preceded medieval period i understand medieval periods sort of three sections and then what uh, came after it yeah, absolutely. So the term medieval or, you know, the term Middle Ages, you can use either. It's absolutely fine. Literally means, you know, the Middle Ages. <laughs> and uh, what that what that kind of um, indicates is that it's the time that happens between the ancient period and the modern period. Right. So the ancient period in general. Um, so this is all kind of um, difficult as well, just to be clear, like I'm a Europeanist. I work on the European Middle Ages in particular. Um, we're now kind of expanding it to cover the, that period in a global way. But the reason why we didn't always necessarily use the term medieval, if we're talking, for example, about China is because um, that society is a lot more advanced. It's got a lot more uh, technological <laughs> things going on. And, and, you know, you kind of look at that and you go, OK, well, that's early modern. Fine. Yeah. Uh, but we're, we're expanding that now. Um, but anyway, so what we say is that um, the end of the ancient world, we generally peg to the fall of Rome in 476 okay. um, when basically the last Roman Roman emperor is killed. OK, um, so fine. 
that's great. Um, really easy bookend. Now, and then you have the medieval period. So basically 477 up to, and then it's kind of question mark. Um, <laughs> and so we, because we don't all agree um, on when the Middle Ages ended. So for me, because one of my areas of specialty um, is Czech things, I kind of say that the medieval period ends with the Hussite Wars um, because the Hussites have managed to establish a whole non-Catholic kingdom um, by uh, 1423. And so there you go. Uh, for me, one of the overarching structures of the medieval period is the hegemony of the church in Europe. Okay. 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 So um, then some people are like, no, no, no. How about the Columbian exchange? Um, when we, in 1492, when Columbus sails to the Americas, then that's a really good kind of end of the for the medieval period. Okay. And some people are like, well, what about Martin Luther in 1517 and with the 99 Theses? And, you know, so there are all these things. So, you know, and, and fundamentally, it's kind of like historicization is for historians. It's for us looking at the past to make our language easier. Like no one in Rome, like looked out the window and went, oh, I guess that like the Roman Empire doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> yeah. I guess that we're in the medieval period now, you know, and same thing, like no one woke up and was like, well, guys, we're modern, you know, like that's not how things work yeah. um so it's really just a way of us using things but you know there is no possible way in which we consider for example even like the end of the 16th century to be medieval so like by the time you hit the 17th century you're definitely modern you know you can think about the tutors here in england like that's a good bridge for early modernness you know there's all kinds of things but basically generalized rule of thumb if you're talking about the 16th century so the 1500s or so then you're probably going to be starting to talk about the early modern period not the medieval period okay great but i mean and so that's quite a it's a bit it's a broad it's a thousand years right like it's quite a broad yeah. um period of time okay great mm -hmm. so um for people whose uh, history is uh, is dodgy, um, where I, I, I've also been enjoying your uh, your particular annoyance with sort of the Dark Ages being misunderstood as a period <laughs> of um, people just regressing and being really dumb. Um, could you mm. explain sort of where the Dark Ages and the Renaissance fit into that timeline? Yeah, definitely. So these are really confusing things because sometimes the way that people use the term Dark Ages, they think it's just as synonymous with medieval. They'll say, oh, you know, if they're talking about the medieval period, they'll say, oh, blah, 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 the Dark Ages. And they'll yeah. use it as a pejorative as well. Um, and that's not what it means. So the term Dark Ages we use to refer to the fact that we don't have a lot of sources that survive from that time. And that's basically from around, you know, the end of the fall of Rome until things really kind of pick up again in kind of the eighth century. And then we suddenly have a lot more sources so there's a lot of interesting stuff going on it is a t like a time period of you know change and there are new ways of doing things um you know in many ways you kind of have europe open up a lot more in you know the quote-unquote dark ages uh because you know the the romans weren't exactly like up in germania were they you know they weren't going to scandinavia nothing like that yeah. but um europeans were kind of like in better contact with each other and we know more about those areas from that time but, you know, having said that, the thing that I always say about it, so we'd say Dark Ages to mean like occluded. We don't have a lot of sources. We can't spy on these people yeah. very effectively <laughs> because we, you know, it's a long, long time ago. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what I always say about this is like, okay, think about, uh, you know, God, I'm getting so old that this is going to be something I can't say. But like, think about your MySpace page, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like there, there was a time when everyone had a MySpace page and like, you know, people use them a lot and it's a kind of artifact of this particular time. And hey, did you close it down or is it still up? Like, um, what is happening? 
over at MySpace. I don't know. I've got no idea, right? Hmm. So you can lose records of something that happened all the time really easily, even within like the digital age when we're supposedly on top of all of these things. Yeah. So you can understand how easy it is to like just not have sources from a thousand years ago. You know, like something has to be really considered important or treasured to make it that far along. Yeah. I yeah. know. So for example, like when we're studying the classical period, a lot of the time when you have like classical texts and stuff, that's because medieval people were like, oh, this is really good. Let's copy this. We like this. So let's copy it and make sure that this kind of like gets handed down through the ages. Or it'll be like you're reading mm, a stone plaque or something like that. And that's hard to get rid of. So that kind of sticks around. When you've got a period where everybody is kind of like writing on parchment, um, which is animal skin, you know, so mm -hmm. it's it's difficult to make, it's expensive to make, um, and, you know, things are kind of slow going, those are not the records that survive to us because you need to have something that's like special, that's really um, beautiful or considered like definitely historic in order to make it through. So we just don't know a lot about that time. Um, so we've kind of abandoned using the term dark ages. And now we just say the early middle ages. Early middle um, ages. Okay. Be just because, and it, literally it's just because people think that dark means bad and people go around saying a lot of uh, quite ignorant stuff about it. And it, gets us annoyed right yeah. you'll see you'll see people call like the 17th century the dark ages and you're like okay so everything you just said is wrong <laughs> everything, <laughs> but, everything uh, old it's just everything is bad yeah. yeah it's like um and you will and you know honest to god like not a week goes by that like someone without a history degree comes to my blog to tell me that i'm wrong oh. about the dark ages actually and i'm like literally not even what it means <laughs> ever but um i love that people still come out on the internet being like hey you look like an expert in this but i read a wikipedia page once and like i think i should tell really, you <laughs> If I had that kind of confidence, you know, where I could go yeah. in life, you know, it'd be fantastic. Yeah. But, um, you know, there's nothing like academia to make you uh, like, it's definitely academia is all about imposter syndrome. And, you know, Wikipedia is all about uh, Dunning-Kruger. So it's pretty fantastic. <laughs> Eleanor's website is a treasure trove, with her own voice clear, cutting, and hilarious throughout. She tells us why she started linking medieval history to pop culture, and how it all started with a 12th century philosopher who was, for better or worse, exactly like Kanye West. How, with, with going medieval, like, how, how, when did you start it, and how did you come to this idea of like blending current affairs because I mean just for the listeners just to give you like a quick scan of just you know literally like the front page of your site you've got you know you've obviously been covering you know um, reactions to the pandemic we've talked about you know sexuality mm -hmm. uh, you've QAnon police brutality Game of Thrones like this this you know you're really engaging with modern pop culture like how where did what was the genesis of it like when did you start writing in, in this way? So, I mean, I suppose that one of the things is this is legitimately just how my brain works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and the actual, actual genesis of it um, started out um, when I was doing my PhD and it started as a Tumblr. Mm. Um, and I did have a going medieval Tumblr too, where I had blog things. But before that, it started out um, in the wilds of like, you know, the, the first memes. And it started out actually as medieval history, Ryan Gosling. 
Okay. Um, and it was uh, when when everyone was doing Ryan Gosling memes, which were great. It was, you know, what a time to be alive. And yeah. it used to be that like memes lasted a lot longer too, right? Yeah. Like you know, memes you you could get a good two three months out of a meme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> back, back in my day, um, as opposed to like now you've got like two days and you have to get on it. Um, but uh, so you know, Ryan Gosling memes in general started, and then there was feminist Ryan Gosling, which was really really great. And it would be like you know Ryan Gosling talking about like. Audrey Lord, and it was fantastic. Mm. And then I was like, you know what, I'm going to do one for medieval history because that's just, you know, where my brain goes. And then that did fairly well and people liked it. And then I kind of realized, oh, well, like there's an appetite for this. People kind of want, um, you know, to, to learn more about medieval history. And so I started the actual blog. Um, and a lot of it actually came out of the way that I just talked to friends who are not medieval historians about medieval history. Mm. Um, so... You know, I think I, I am completely convinced that if everyone had the opportunity to learn more about medieval history, which in general, we don't, we just don't have that opportunity, um, then they would be more interested in it. And the best way to kind of like get them interested in it is to let them know like how our world is still intersecting with that. Yeah. Um, and I, so, you know, for example, if I love to go on holiday and look at a medieval church. And uh, my friends always laugh because I'll kind of like take people around and I'll be like, you know, oh, here's the statue of the saint. And then this motherfucker, you know, and because that's just that's just like the way that I talk. You yeah. know, it's not, um, you know, I come by it honestly. Um, and one of the things that I was using and one of the things that I started off with on the blog is that um, I would teach about uh, Peter Abelard. Um, and Peter Abelard, lucky for you, you don't know who he is. <laughs> He's a very, very brilliant kind of 12th century philosopher. Okay. Um, and really, really interesting. Um, one of the reasons that we know a lot about him is that he's condemned for heresy. There's like all this like kind of uh, back and forth drama. Um, but one of the big things that happened with him is that he had a love affair with his student, um, Eloise of Argentil, um, which now, you, you know, we look at that and we're like extremely dodgy. Wow. Don't, don't have sex with your students, please. Yeah. But um, their love letters to each other back and forth survive. And he's got this very dramatic life. Um, and the way he's one of the big people that we kind of teach in the medieval period, because, you know, he's got this really great autobiography that he writes where he talks about how great he is and how everyone just loves him so much and how he's so smart. And uh, that's why the church came for him and all this stuff. And you're like, oh, OK, sure, bro. Um, but it's this really great kind of document of like showing how medieval people think about themselves, how they think about the world. Um, and it's kind of like going against the medieval idea. There, there's a thing that modernists say all the time is that medieval people don't have an idea of the self. OK. Um, um, and it's like, okay, yeah, Abelard doesn't think about anything other than himself. <laughs> but I usually teach my students about this, or I mean, at least I used to. This is the thing I've had to like re-up this. And I would say, well, you know, the way to think about Abelard is that he's pretty much like the Kanye West of the 12th century. <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, oh, where he's like a completely self-obsessed. He just rubs people the wrong way all the time. He would have been way more like successful in a number of ways if he could just learn to behave himself, but he yeah. can't. Um, but at the same time, Time, you have to admit that he's a genius oh right where it's like you I'm know so and, uh, you know camp with Kanye. Yeah, and it's like and so you know like hey you can say anything that you want about kanye but my beautiful dark twisted fantasy you know yeah. um yeah, yeah, yeah. so like you know like go ahead like yeah no one necessarily like likes his public persona um but at the same time and this is you know this is before all the trump stuff so it was a lot easier too yeah. but uh, like now i'm like oh i'm gonna have to rethink this um but uh the 
also at the same time you know stuff like oh you know when he sure when he jumped up on stage at the mtv awards to uh talk about how uh, beyonce should have won for single ladies instead of whatever taylor swift won for (laughs) was it polite it was not polite but was he wrong (laughs) exactly was he wrong i don't even know what video i don't even know what video taylor swift won for i know about single ladies i could do the dance right now you know, yeah. like we all know that he was right. So, and this is kind of like exactly the same thing with what's going on with um, Abelard is that like, is he a total prick? He absolutely is, but he's just a blinding genius. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to think about it that way. And I think that it's a really kind of like useful way of thinking about things. And I think it's, uh, it helps kind of people to get a sense that like medieval people aren't just like these stuffy kind of like a boring monks. It's like, even when, you know, we're talking about priests like Abelard, it's like, there's love affairs. There is like, um, you know, they're shouting. There's like, you know, all like the passion and all of like the complex characters that we have now exists in the medieval period it's just that you kind of have to like squint to see it what going medieval does so well is pull the reader in to learning more about history through the week's top news stories the first piece of eleanor's i read was about sex demons and it shows how concepts from centuries ago are coming up and potentially influencing us today it's a story that starts with trump and the coronavirus and lead you all the way back to demon semen. Yep, I said demon semen. Your style is so understandable, it's so funny, and you you really brought to light how, exactly what you said at the beginning, how these ideas from a medieval time, people that would think it's not associated with them at all, it's something so foreign and so far away, it still has these ripples and these waves and these echoes um, in our modern Mm. life. Yeah, I think, um, so I, I love the sex demons one. It was extremely like, this was like a gift to me from, you know, the universe, you know, this is like some secret shit uh, where it's like, you know, um, I, you know, I, who would have thought that I ever would have had an excuse to write about sex demons. Um, but I did uh, because basically there is a pediatrician in Texas, uh, Dr. Emanuel, I can't remember her first name now, um, but as she is apparently a big fan of uh, Donald Trump and she gained some recognition because although she's a pediatrician, um, she was heard to remark that um, like masks are not good for COVID um, and also hydrochloronic uh, is good for COVID and you don't need a vaccine and, and basically whatever uh, Trump wants to hear. So uh, mm-hmm. Trump was uh, then uh, kind of amplifying her voice and, um, you know, sharing a lot of videos with her uh, like on Twitter. So, I mean, great, whatever. Now, that's all well and good. Turns out our good friend, the Dr. Emmanuel, belongs to some form of evangelical Christianity that also believes in sex demons. Um, So (laughs) sex demons, you know, as you do. Um, So her particularized um, discussion of sex demons is what demons do is essentially assume a kind of astral form and will have sex with women, uh, like in women's sleep and they won't necessarily know that they're having sex with them or they can enter the bodies of like, so say you're having just, you know, very good, wholesome marital sex with your husband, a sex demon could enter the body of your husband unbeknownst to both of you. The problem with this is that the demon semen, (laughs) 
which I, I, I tend to say, I, I, I tend to go with a demon jizz or demon cum because demon semen is just too difficult. Um, will then lodge itself um, in the uterus and it will cause feminine trouble. So, you know, anything from kind of like um, uh, cysts uh, to generalize kind of like, oh, well, you know, women be crazy. You yeah, know, it'll like yeah. some kind of mental imbalance, um, which is, of course, connected to the uterus and the demon semen therein. Um, and, uh, you know, things like, um, oh, gosh, I can't remember the name of the terrible condition uh, where your uterine lining. Oh, endometriosis. Uh, endometriosis. Yeah. yeah. Endometriosis can be caused by all this demon sex. <laughs> um, and so she's like, here's a prayer that you should say to warm, ward off the demon sex and get rid of any demon jizz. Um, and so this was all very interesting to me. <laughs> as one does. <laughs> um, yeah, as one does. Um, so, you know, my, you know, obviously, so I've got like my magic side hustle here. I've got my um, sex side hustle. So like, here we go. Um, so this is very interesting because there is a real like a long lasting history of a conception of a demon sex. So we know, for example, like way, 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 way back in the ancient period. So we're talking Mesopotamia. So, you know, so far back in the BCs that it's just like ridiculous. Um, the hero Gilgamesh is supposed to have been kind of sired by some kind of sex demon. Um, so there's okay. this uh, Babylonian idea that there are some kind of like vampire sort of sex demon things out in the desert. And they also are kind of um, the genesis of the Lilith story okay. um, as well. So like uh, you can have a Lilithu, which is feminine or a Lilemu, Lil Lil I think is the masculine. Anyway, so Gilgamesh's dad, he's a sex demon. So that's cool. Um in the medieval period, you can then talk about incubi and succubi. And they are both sex demons. Uh, they are kind of more of a thing in the high medieval period, which is what we call sort of like, um, say, the 9th century onwards, 10th century onwards. Um, and then there's the late medieval period, which is kind of like uh, 13th, 14th, 15th, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so there's some more periods for you. Um, anyway, incubi and succubi. Uh, incubi are male sex demons that show up with sleeping women and impregnate them. So it's like the incubere. So it's like incubate. Bait, okay. um, yeah, gotcha. yeah. So yeah. So they're like, their kind of main thing is they want to show up and have sex with sleeping women and like get a baby with them. Uh, the then female version of this is a succubus. And succubi will show up and have sex with uh, sleeping men. And men might know this because they might have like a particularly sexy dream or something like that. Okay. And then you know that that's, uh, that's a succubus has come along. Um, there is a little bit more of a concern about succubus is kind of taking corporeal form and wandering around looking like sexy ladies. Oh. Uh, but then you'll know that they are a succubus because uh, they have like claw feet or they have a snake's tail or something like that. So, you you know, like always check the feet. Okay. For tail. Um, but there's a more of an existential worry about um, the incubi than the succubi because incubi, you know, could actually theoretically father children. Okay. Um, so there is also like a big... Um, fantasy trope about this so for example merlin's dad is an incubus uh so there you go um and oh. medieval people really like this because merlin is kind of used as this example of like okay well just because your dad is a demon doesn't mean that you two can't find christ uh, but uh, <laughs> they use it as this they kind of like a uh, nature nurture thing and the idea that like yeah. even as a demon then you two can like you find your way forward so that's cute Okay. Then, Everyone is redeemable. <laughs> you know, and that's and that's kind of like a nice story, right? Um, 
so I mean, you know, incubi notwithstanding. <laughs> but then um, in the early modern period, when the witch panics take off, this whole thing um, becomes much more thought of as um, a really kind of existential threat. And one of the big places that we see a lot of worry about demon sex is in the Malleus Maleficorum or the Hammer of Witches. Um, this is a uh, 15th century, 15th century, I think, late 15th century, early 16th century um, guidebook for witch hunting. Um, and it's written by a couple of Germans. Um, and they're like, everybody needs to know that witches exist. Hey, everybody, like, we need to go hunting witches. Uh, yeah. And which interesting um as as a flex uh, but um basically there when you read the malleus one of the major preoccupations that they actually have with witches in general is sex stuff so the whole like preamble like the introduction is all like why is it that women be witches and not <laughs> men and they're like oh well because women are horny uh is like ma their major thing so um yeah. they're like well you know women cause original sin and women are really um more interested in sex and the way that the devil gets to you um is through sex um so there are just pages and pages and pages even before they get to the like let's all go hunting witches where they're like so when witches have sex with with the devil where is he getting that come from it's like a thing that the witch hunters like i oh, want to know um and they come up with this big thing which to their credit this is something that saint augustine who is a late antique writer so back in kind of like the fourth century wrote about um and there's this kind of idea that you know the devil can't make life right so the devil can't have semen Okay. Because the, devil, the devil's just like a fallen angel. He can't just like go around creating life. So when the devil has big orgies with all the witches, which they're assuredly having, that's what a sabbat is. They're just having like a giant orgy in a normal way. Um, cool. And so what he does in order to prep for this is he will turn himself into a succubus, go have sex with a sleeping man, capture the sleeping man's semen, and then he will turn himself back into like a male form of himself. And then he will use the sleeping man's semen to have sex with witches. Nice. There you go. <laughs> uh, so there is like, also this big thing where like a lot of time they'll be like, oh, you know, so like uh, the devil's semen's always cold because it's like this like stored stored semen and it's not cold over time and like and there is like long long drawn out considerations of this fact um and so when the malleus maleficarum comes out it's actually really interesting because everyone is like sounds like you two are fucking nuts and um are really really way too obsessed with jizz like what is your problem why are you doing this right um and so it doesn't have a whole lot of impact when it first comes out people are just like you two are mad i'd like what is going on with this but then like it kind of sits there and over time it sort of percolates and actually as you get further into the modern period you get more and more concerned about witches you get more and more witch hunts and then like 80 years later everyone is like real shit like get get the malleus out they know all about this and like, you need to be worrying about all those demon orgies and then when you have more witch yeah, trials okay. and like confesses from witches, witches who are like oh yes um, i've had sex with the the devil his semen is definitely cold here are like all these things so it kind of just like enters popular culture um so that is weird and gross um and uh, it's also you know which trial documents are a really difficult uh one because you know a lot of the people who are um tried as witches you know they've been tortured beforehand yeah. and you know by that time, you'll say literally anything you know 
Outside of these rather extreme examples, I asked Eleanor about the general conceptions of sex during medieval times. It's fascinating to see what's been lost, what has stayed, and what has evolved in our understanding of gender roles, and what and who sex is actually for. How would have medieval people um, viewed sex? Like, what what was sex to them? So, I mean, this is you know my life's work. <laughs> so it, it's an inter- it, it's an interesting one because it's like a lot of the records that we have, right, are you know what I would call hostile about sex. Mm. Um, so it's like a lot of the things that survive, you know, because of the way that survival works, is that we get like church documents. Yeah. You know? Um, and the church documents, the official church position is that sex is to be tolerated all right so sex ideally in an ideal world um sex wouldn't exist because in an ideal world um eve would have never been tempted by the snake adam and eve would still just be chilling in the garden of eden immortal and perfect and happy there would be no necessary need for um degeneration via sex right yeah but because they got cast out of the garden of eden when um eve is cursed to bring forth her children in blood and suffering um sex is kind of like a part of this right yeah. So sex is necessarily connected with the fall of man. Um, and before uh, man became sinful and evil, there was no such thing as sex, right? So it's definitively a bad thing. Um, but at the same time, everyone kind of acknowledges that you need to get more humans from somewhere. Yeah. So the ideal Christian um, in the kind of medieval sense and late antique sense as well um, is celibate. So, I mean, ideally, ideally, you are a saint or you are a priest or you are someone like this and your whole life is devoted to a reflection on God and you just don't have sex because you don't want to. But um, at the same time, they recognize that's really not for everybody and that it's a difficult thing and you need more people. So there's a phrase that gets thrown around, which is called, um, it is better to marry than to burn. Um, The actual kind of conception about what it's better to marry than to burn means is a difficult one because uh, we're not sure necessarily if we're saying the burn there is to go to hell uh, because of lust um, or if they're just talking about sort of like the condition of being very lustful and being kind of like burnt up with desire and uh, being totally preoccupied with it all the time. Okay. Um, because, you know. Uh, oh, sorry. And then I, and I was saying that, that then you said that the, the um, you get this conception of women being very hot and men being the cooler of the two yeah so it's like and okay so interestingly so (laughs) so then it's like so you should get married and you can have if you're having sex within marriage in order to have children then it's fine right yeah um the problem with this is that women are just massively horny um and uh, so you know that women are massively horny uh because well a they're descended from eve um and you know eve is bad and so and sex is bad so therefore women are more interested in sex and if you could think logically like a logical man (laughs) um you would know that sex is kind of bad and sinful and you would know that you only want to have sex in the rarest of circumstances and you only want to have sex um when you necessarily are going to be making heirs right and so men can logically shut that down whereas women can't um part of this is due to their humoral makeup uh, so the humoral system exists both in the ancient period for Greeks and Romans as well as medieval people. So you can go ahead and make fun of humors all you want. But just so you know, it was the prevailing medical theory up until the 19th century. So you can't just blame it on medieval people. It's like the Romans were doing this. We were doing this. Everybody was doing this. right? <laughs> so uh, the idea is that there was kind of like four uh, humors in your body. There's blood, black bile, yellow bile and phlegm. 
Um, these correspond to different kind of characteristics. So things are either cold or hot, wet or dry. Okay. Um, and women are cold and wet and men are hot and dry. Oh, okay. um, and as and as a result of being, it's confusing, right? Because as a result of being cold and wet, women are more interested in sex because it warms them up. Ah, <laughs> sorry. So, <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's, it's so, great. Sorry. Yeah, they're trying to get hot. We're basically see. like um, lizards just trying to just trying to get some heat off someone else. <laughs> exactly. And so it's like, so women are going to be constantly attempting to initiate sex with men because they want to get hot. Um, it takes them longer to kind of like get turned on or get hot. But then mm. when they do, um, it's like they always say it's like a lighting wet wood on fire. By the time it is on fire, it's hotter than it otherwise would be because, um, you know, you had to get it that hot. And there's a lot of talk about like um, penis and vagina sex in particular and kind of the friction that that causes for women and how that warms women up. Um, the flip side of that is that men are constantly cautioned against having too much sex because uh, in the first place, a semen is seen um, as kind of a, a diminishable thing so it's like you only have so much semen and you don't want to go around wasting it you need to use your very precious semen for making babies okay. uh which is funny because that's 100 percent not the case <laughs> whereas whereas with women they're like oh they could just make babies and it's like again okay like you know whatever yeah. whatever that's fine um but the downside if you have a bunch of sex with women is they'll kind of steal all your heat and you'll become cold uh like a woman and then you might get really horny so it's like the more sex that men have, like the hornier they could be because they kind of become like a woman. Um, mm. There's also kind of like um, an existential worry. Uh, this is for Romans as well as uh, medieval people. Uh, there is this worry too that you, when you become like a woman and you become obsessed with sex, you might start having like any kind of sex. So you might ha start having sex with other men as well uh, because mm. you're just like such a woman now. From So, you know, if you have a bunch of sex with women, you might start having sex with men as well. Because, you know, it makes because like, fellas, is it gay to have sex with women? Um, so mm. it's uh, there's like this real worry and kind of like warning to men. You've got to keep women in check. You've got to keep women's sexuality in check because you'll become like a woman, which is like the worst possible thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's always this anxiety about um, women's sexuality. Um, and that kind of morphs into the sort of witch panic of the modern period. And it, it is kind of like about the sort of like insatiable, uh, perverted um, the sexuality for the sake of sexuality, pleasure for the sake of pleasure, um, which is seen as a feminine aspect. I'm still kind of giggling. I'm just, <laughs> I'm still loving the idea of women just being very cold and, and wet and sort of like slithering mm -hmm. up to men like hot rocks and being just <laughs> like, oh, the heat, the heat. Um, but, oh, I was intersectionally, did, did mm -hmm. the Black Death have any influence on how people saw sex in the medieval times? So there are a couple of things that sort of happen as a result of a black death in terms of sex is that one is that there's a subsection of people who are like, fuck it. I'm having sex. We're all, we're all going to die. Absolutely. Screw this. And you know, you do see like records of people being all like whatever orgy, here we go. Um, but you also do see the opposite thing happen. Um, so there are interesting groups. So for example, um, the flagellants who you may have heard of, um, the flagellants kind of crop up and they are like a, a, a low a, like a lay movement a popular movement where suddenly especially in like german and italian places a group of people will just show up in a city 
they'll strip down naked to their waist and they'll start beating themselves and they'll be like oh god forgive us all and like the idea behind the public flagellation is that god is punishing the world with the black death and so if we go out there and cause ourselves physical pain and flagellate ourselves then we can show him yeah we know that we're all a bunch of sinners um and then we can kind of get out in front of this and maybe he'll stop the plague right hmm. so they see themselves as like this very holy uh group um who are kind of like trying to intercede with god and they talk a lot about purity and they talk about a lot about these sort of things people who don't like flagellants are like these people are having orgies <laughs> and so um there there are all these kind of rumors they that because they'll kind of like yeah exactly they've got whips they're stripping down uh, in public and they are they kind of go from town to town and they sleep in the woods together like they're definitely definitely having sex so there's a way of reading that where people are like well these people are having sex there's a way of reading it where these people are insanely pure um there is also this kind of thing that you see where when people are sort of trying to explain why the plague is happening a big scapegoat will be sexuality so um here in the uk there is a bishop the bishop of rochester thomas brinton um writes a bunch of sermons about how the reason the black death is happening is a you're all dressing like sluts b you are sluts mm. um, so like he'll have a big um rant about like um how pointy everybody's shoes are and how tight their hose are and like how low cut dresses are and like you're going around dressed like sluts and god hates it um and then he will have a rant about how and you're all having sex and that's why god is uh, punishing us with this mm. um so on the one hand you see kind of like uh you know the clergy responding to this by being like you were too sexy and this is why god is doing this and don't get me wrong like this is hyperbole obviously here we are with this this bishop who wants to stop people from having sex but it also shows us at the same time that probably that is the case probably people are kind of going around being like oh well screw it if i'm gonna die tomorrow get me those pointy shoes yeah you know <laughs> um like let me get you know which is very sexy i think we can all agree um and you know like yeah whatever i'm gonna wear tight hose like i'm going out and i'm going to be interested in fashion and i'm just going to try to live a nice life so you have these two kind of like competing ways of looking at it um and they're definitely um, kind of at play and there's a real tension there. So there is a kind of like, you know, sexual response to death um, at all times because, you know, to a certain extent, you know, the, the idea of like having children, it's like our way of sort of like saying, oh, okay, well, I'm securing my legacy. It's like that mm. us trying to fight death, right? So um, a lot of people do respond to uh, death with sex and you definitely see that during the plague. Plague, okay. Um, and... Uh, I guess last question before we sort of move to the conclusion, which is, um, you know, with everything, obviously, A, I would say, did you have a huge uptick in questions and, and visits to your blog when the pandemic st started? And mm. um, what do you think we can learn from your history about what we're coping with now? Um, I did. <laughs> it's uh, the quick answer. So a lot of people, you know, one of the things, it's interesting, the way people's minds work is they cast around and they think about other uh, pandemics and they think about the Black Death. Um, there's a reason for this and that's because the Black Death was absolutely world changing and like, you know, basically as a species, we are still kind of like scarred from that particular experience mm. because so many of us died. You know, it's um, estimated about, you know, uh, in Europe, about 50% of the population, 25% of the population worldwide died. Uh, that's a lot of people. Um, so we're still kind of, you know, recovering from that yeah. a thousand years later. Um, you know, well, sorry, it's not a thousand years later. It's 700 years later. But um, 
even you know it, like i've got a, a shirt that my sister got me um as a joke years ago that it's got a little rat with a party hat on it and it says celebrating 666 years of uh, the black death and on the back it's got like black death tour dates and like when it showed up in the crime area and then and i've literally had um people he like come up to me and be like oh uh, and like scoff at me about how like this is not an appropriate <laughs> t-shirt to be wearing and i'm like oh wow sorry too soon um you know a kind of thing and so there there is kind of like this uh, this tension about that um but it's interesting because we have a more ready example actually like historically um, in this so-called spanish flu yeah. of you know the early 20th century late 19th century which is actually a lot more like what we're living through um and interestingly collectively that's not something that we like think about in the same way even though it had a really really high mortality rate um a, you know it, but it wasn't as deadly as the black death so the black death kind of like remains the one um in all of our heads yeah and um i think that there are some things that we can kind of uh, learn from the black death with and one of them is that you know pandemics change things um this pandemic is not as bad as the black death it's uh, not as deadly but it's still really pretty quite virulent um and it's you know even you know my friends of mine who have uh, come down with covid and thankfully survived you know it's like months later they're still not well and they may never you know recover certain things it's you know it can be debilitating it's really really dangerous um and this is going to change things. The Black Death changed things um, necessarily. The Black Death, you know, meant that like we lost whole villages, you yeah. know, um, where it was like, well, that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> people can't live like that um, anymore. We would see a massive migration, people moving into various places in order to kind of make up for population loss, all sorts of things like that. Um, and these are the kind of things that I think that we could I mean, it, it might not be, you know, migration or things like that, but, you know, it is, things are going to change, things are going to shift, and they're going to have to shift necessarily. The thing about pandemics, until you can get a hold of the germ, which uh, we didn't get hold of um, Yersinia pestis, which causes bubonic plague into the 19th century until we um, got my antimicrobials. That's what stops it. We're really good at it now. It doesn't even mean anything anymore. Like, yeah. we're just like, bang, here you go. We, we can take care of it. Um, but until you have that, things necessarily do have to shift and they do have to change. And it just in order to keep people safe. Um, and we really kind of can't go back to the way things are. Like the genie's out of the bottle and yeah. we're going to have to kind of figure out a way of doing this. Um, that's kind of like my downer message. Uh, what people want me to say <laughs> and what people always want to say is that people like to say, oh, but then the Black Death is responsible for the Renaissance um, and, um, and people's wages went up. Um, and like that's kind of like an old way of looking at the plague which is when i first got into medieval studies that's something that i used to kind of look at but um we've kind of been reevaluating that um and you know actually workers wages kind of go up 30 in in england specifically i'm, I'm talking about here they go up about 30 years after the black death hits Okay. Uh, and they go up and then they ossify and stay at that level for 150 years. Okay. So not quite the <laughs> great leap forward that we were hoping for. <laughs> yeah, it's not like, oh, wow, suddenly there's so much more money. And, it, you know, uh, it, that, so like that's not like the thing that we can kind of like look to and point to. Um, it sucks. But, you know, the medieval period is not uh, what we would call equitable. Uh, mm -hmm. That's not a, a thing that's going on. Um, the idea of like the Renaissance coming out of the Black Death, I also find just kind of like weird and laughable because it's like, OK, so don't get me wrong. There's a lot of great art that happens um, in the Renaissance. Uh, I, too, like Michelangelo because I'm not a monster. <laughs> um, but that's like 150 years after the Black Death. 
Yeah. Um, not quite. Like, if that's if, like if that's what you're sitting around holding your breath for, you've got some waiting to do. You know, it's like we have this tendency to kind of collapse what you know the medieval period is and go, oh, boom. Like here we go. Oh, this then this. You know, the way that people think about history is this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And it's like, well, sure, but there's a really long time in between. So don't you think that like you know if that's what you're trying to get out of this is that's the good news you want? You're not going to get to see that. Yeah. Like you will be dead before that happens. And also, you know, um, whilst the art of the Renaissance is great and no one's saying that it isn't, that didn't really do much for people's quality of life. And actually, we see on the Italian peninsula during the Italian Renaissance, uh, life expectancy drops massively from what it was in the medieval period. So it's like, mm-hmm. yay. You know, it's like, you know, the, the way that we talk about the Renaissance is like, and then everything was good. And it's like, no, that's like literally you just like the new art. It's fine. Yeah. Like it's yeah. not, it's, it's not like <laughs> world beating thing that like changes you know everything for everyone and it's it's kind of something that happened for rich people yeah yeah. so it's like and so that's kind of like the bummer is that it's like if that's what you want me to tell you that's not a real story it's kind of like one that we make to console ourselves about how things were bad um but you know the thing that i can say that is good is that you know medieval people kept going and they you know the 14th century when the black death happened is my favorite century and um, they made really incredible um art and architecture on their own like gothic art and architecture is incredible it's beautiful it's massively complicated it's uh, absolutely gorgeous you can still make and create and do beautiful things even in the midst of terrible times you know it doesn't have to stop just because something bad is happening and actually sometimes um you know the way that you relate to that or express to that can in and of itself be good um i don't think that we should be asking for some kind of like fast forward button to like get through our lives so that the people after this have a better one and i don't think that it's helpful to kind of say oh what a future date this will all be fine i think that what we need to do is kind of like stick in and see how it is that we can make this current situation be more equitable be um, a time when there is still room for art and joy we need to kind of like dig our heels in and say no like we're not going to just skip over this time how do we improve things now not let's wait until later and then it can get better. yeah yeah okay great um so for everyone who is definitely gonna close this and start go straight to your website where can people find <laughs> you and can you tell us a bit about your book yeah, so uh, my website is uh, goingmedieval.com, but there's a hyphen in the middle. It's all lowercase. So going-medieval.com. That's where I blog. I try to do something every week um, and I compile, you know, any podcast or anything I've done there as well. Um, I have an upcoming book in the it should be kind of spring winter 2021 um it is called a graph the middle ages a graphic history it's on icon you can pre-order it now and it's really really fun uh because it's kind of done in sort of like graphic novel style so there's lots of really gorgeous pictures um my illustrator neil emmanuel is um extraordinarily gifted um and we've got some really beautiful images there and what that is is kind of like a quick compendium sort of like a middle middle ages 101 and it's actually based off of um introductory medieval courses that i teach um, so if you if you want to like know what it is that i need you to know very quickly um that's a good way of doing it and it's a nice introduction um on twitter i'm at at going medieval capital g capital m and yeah you know i'm i'm over there every day yelling about sex you are a fantastic like follow on twitter in between all the despair and awfulness it's it's great to see like a really graphic <laughs> like medieval sex picture <laughs> you know that's that's basically how i i try to live my life that way you know so glad i can bring the joy to others 
Um, thank you so much for your time and for joining me today. This was a great conversation. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks again to Elena, Dr. Janiger. It was such a great chat. As always, please do send me your feedback. I love to hear it. This week, instead of asking for a rate and a review, I'm going to ask you to share this episode with one friend if you enjoyed it. I know I've always found all my favorite podcasts through word of mouth, so I'm hoping my own can travel that way too. Um, If a friend did recommend this to you, please tell me and I'll give you both a shout out in next week's episode. You can find Storyteller on Instagram at Storyteller underscore pod and on Twitter at Storyteller pod one. I'll leave my DMs open so you can send me messages. You can also email me at storytellerpod at gmail.com. I always love to hear your thoughts on the episodes and any suggestions for people you would like to hear on the show. Until next time, 